Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, where we let light shine out of darkness. With your host, Jeff Stewart, licensed marriage and family therapist. On today's episode of the Illuminate Podcast, I'm going to interview Dr. Adam Moore. He's a great friend of mine and a colleague who also works with pornography addiction, sexual addiction, and betrayal trauma. And in fact, he's written extensively on this. He's a well-sought-after speaker, and he also has developed curriculum and programs and has a podcast. And so Adam is uh, very well-versed in how to work with and deal with some of the more complicated issues facing individual and couples who are dealing with pornography, sexual addiction, and betrayal trauma. So our topic today is going to center around uh, debunking some of the misconceptions that people have about treatment. There's a lot of advice out there, and we want to hopefully be a voice of reason based on our experiences and training to help people be able to navigate this world. So let's jump right into the interview. Well, welcome to the Illuminate Podcast, Adam. Thanks so much for making time for us this afternoon. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Man, this is fun. So a lot of people are struggling with this issue. They're dealing with pornography, addiction, sexual addiction, relationship trauma, and there's so many answers online. People are trying to figure out how to get help for this. The first place people usually go is, you know, they go to Google and start trying to get information, or they maybe talk to somebody they know. And it seems like there's a lot of misconceptions about how to deal with this issue. And as, you know, therapists who, we, you know, you've worked with this issue for a lot of years, I have as well. Uh, today's podcast is really about helping clearing up to help clear up some of these misconceptions, at least from our experience, right? I mean, clearly we're just another couple of voices out there, but we do work with this issue a lot, and we've seen a lot of people over the years. And uh, there's some, I think there's some things that have been really harmful and, and difficult for people, and we really want to help prevent some of that. Yeah, I agree. And you know, on one level, it's really nice that there is as much content as there is out there now because. I talk to people, and you do too, where they say, man, 10 years ago, I was looking and there wasn't anything online about right. this. I was having to wing it. Right. But anytime you add a whole bunch of content, you know, from people all over, you're, you're going to get stuff that's just anywhere from like mildly unhelpful to wildly inaccurate. Yeah, right. And that's what we want to sift through today. Um, there's lots of well-meaning people out there. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we certainly uh, have some opinions and ideas that have been formed through meeting with thousands of people over the years between the two of us. And uh, hopefully some of what we share today can be helpful as you're trying to figure out how to help yourself or a loved one who's uh, facing the the struggle of recovering from something like pornography addiction or relationship trauma. So the first question I want to ask you is really about credentials and training and certification for treating people who struggle with pornography addiction and sexual addiction, relationship trauma, I know out there there's a lot of different groups and organizations that have different types of trainings. There's, you know, there's lots of certifications for treating partners that have been betrayed. There's certifications for treating people with sexual addictions. What what's the gold standard? What how can somebody know if they're getting good help? I typically invite people to have a conversation with the treatment provider if at all humanly possible. So call them up and have a conversation and just ask some key questions. And it's not necessarily what is your, you know, what's your certification or do you have a a master's degree or PhD? I I don't think those are nearly as relevant as being able to just have a conversation. So questions like, 
how many of the clients that you work with are struggling with sexual addiction? Um, what's your approach to working with individuals versus couples? How do you deal with a person who isn't maybe all the way ready to change yet, that they're still really in their denial? I think the answers to the questions, the ease with which the individual can answer the questions, if they've got some ideas that just sort of roll off the tongue because that's all they do all day, that in my mind is a much better indicator of whether that person's going to be helpful uh, versus they happen to have a few letters after their name that may not necessarily mean anything. I mean, I've seen a lot of dentists over the years and some are much better than others, but they all went to the same schooling. Right. Absolutely. So there's kind of a basic, you know, obviously you want to work with somebody who's licensed, somebody who is, you know, has, has at least a base professional counseling degree of some kind and right. who can work with you. And, you know, there's a lot of recovery coaches out there and people that have been in recovery themselves and charge money to provide coaching. And we recognize there's lots of ways for people to get help. But at the core, what you're saying is that somebody needs to have a lot of in the trenches experience working with this issue and actually being helpful to people. And the kinds of questions that you ask will give you a really good sense of whether or not this person um, has a model, has an idea of a, like a plan, a program for how to help you. Right. Because it's your life, it's your marriage, it's your whatever, your relationship. I don't believe in leaving that to fate or going, well, this person, well, let's try them out and see how it goes. Uh, my preference is. I'm going to do all my homework first and I'm going to really make sure that this person knows what they're talking about and that they, like you said, they've got a lot of experience. And I actually prefer the sort of apprenticeship guild model to training, which is you go as a clinician, you go work in an, an agency or an office where that's what they do. And you learn firsthand with people that know what they're talking about day to day. You're having those dialogues. I know that's the way that you guys do it in your office. That's the way we do it in ours. I just think that's a much better model than you're sitting there online listening to somebody or in a classroom hearing a million things that you're writing down. I don't know. It's just me. I learn by doing, and I think people most of the time do better when they learn by doing compared to just hearing about it and then getting some letters after their name. So that's a good point. Asking, you can even ask a therapist or you know someone you're working with how they got their training and how they how they know what they know. And there's a lot of confidence in saying, yeah, I worked at this place for a, you know a number of years, or I've I've trained under this person, or I've worked with this kind of population, or I run this many groups, or whatever the case is. There's just a lot of a lot of confidence in knowing that somebody's still in business and they're still doing good work. Obviously, word of mouth referrals is huge if you've got people that have worked with somebody who's really good, then, then you should trust that whether or not they have that particular special, you know, training or designation behind their name. Um, right. There's a lot of people that have figured out how to work with these issues, uh, just by having done it for so long and, and versus having paid tens of thousands of dollars to go get a particular certification. Right. So, okay. Yeah, that's great. There's just a lot of people I know that, that at least contact me, probably contact you and are looking for help and are obviously trying to figure out whether or not they are going to get the help they need from this person. And they, and there are a lot of good therapists out there and resources that don't necessarily um, only have a certain type of uh, certification behind their name. So, That's right. And uh, let's talk about the next uh, misconception, this idea that sexual addiction is always progressive, meaning that 
you know, if you're looking at pornography, then in so many years, you'll be doing this next behavior, then this next behavior, all the way up to where you're maybe doing something criminal. Let's right. talk about that, Adam. You'll often hear it even in the 12-step groups. They'll say, if you stay in this, you know, disease, this progressive disease long enough, you'll eventually get to worse and worse behaviors. You know, and I don't want to diminish the idea that people often do progress into scarier and, like you said, even criminal behaviors, mm -hmm. but it's not necessarily always the case. I mean, I've got plenty of people I've worked with who have almost like a strange sort of set of boundaries around their own behavior. Like, I'll do these behaviors, and I know they're problematic, and I know they're hurting people, but they really never stray outside of those behaviors. So I, in my mind, it's a scare tactic that I don't think is necessarily one that we always want to you know, communicate to people like, oh, it's you are guaranteed to get worse because I think on some level it undermines our credibility because when people aren't getting worse, when they're staying the same, uh, meaning, you know, their, their behaviors are still problematic, but it's not progressing into, um, you know, something that is more devious, deviant, etc. Then you lose credibility and people go, oh, well, they might not know what they're talking about because they said this is going to go to this direction and it didn't. And I think credibility is so important when you're talking to people that you want to only say things that are accurate and that people can really buy into. Because if you start losing credibility as a helper, then the other things that you say are also going to become, you know, questionable in, in people's minds. Right. So you talk about this, this control issue and, and we know that people that struggle with addictive behaviors are in essence, trying to control a lot of things. And so they can have kind of their own morality, if you will, inside the addiction where they, they totally believe like, if I, if I go this far, then I'm, then I'm really out of control. But if I go this far, somehow I'm still a good person. And so that can oftentimes keep the addiction, if you will, from progressing into worse behaviors, even though they're still suffering tremendously and betraying people and everything else. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to go out and do every worst thing you can imagine. Right. Yeah. And it, and you do make an awesome point there. And I had not really thought of that before that, that form of denial of, well, as long as I'm not crossing these lines, then I'm still okay. It, it has a dual um, outcome. One outcome is it keeps them from progressing into other behaviors, but the second outcome is it keeps them from getting better because their perception is I'm actually not doing that bad right. because I haven't done these other things. I'm not like so those other guys sword. that go to strip clubs or hire prostitutes. I just look at pornography, right. yeah. but they don't realize that they're still totally stuck denying yeah. reality, hurting their wife and their, themselves. Yeah. Right. And so if, if somebody is worried that, um, oh my goodness, I just discovered my kid looking at pornography or – you know, is he going to turn out to be a, a criminal or end up cheating on somebody someday, whatever? What would you say to them? It's the same thing I would say to a person who says, oh, my gosh, I just found out my spouse is looking at pornography. Are they going to molest my kids? I mean, I, I hear that, you know, concern as well. Right. And the answer is, well, we don't know what they're going to do. We don't know what people are capable of. So more important than worrying about the likelihood of something progressing to something else, I think that it's it's more valuable to just stay focused on the moment. All right, well, what are we looking at right now? What are the concerns we're dealing with now? Let's address those. You know, certainly if somebody has a sense or an intuition like, oh, you know, my children might be in danger or there's something else going on here, 
I think that's fair to pay attention to and look into. You know, you don't want to you don't want to say, well, you know, most people don't progress in other things, so I'll just ignore it. It'll be fine. But if it leads to panic, if it leads to further self traumatization, then I think it has gone from useful as a concept to to unhelpful. Yeah. Right. And and the reality, I think, is that a lot of people that are struggling with addictions, um, whether or not they progress into other behaviors, need to show at some level that they're engaged in the process, that they're working hard. And if they're doing that, the chances of them progressing to other behaviors goes way down. And not to mention the fact that if, if they're, let's say, quote unquote, only looking at pornography but they just stay minimizing it and don't get real help and they just keep trying to avoid it, then that progressively is going to keep them in a disconnected state and do tremendous damage to themselves and their relationships, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, all down the line, even though they, they may just you know stay in a behavior that looks pretty mild on the surface. Right. And you don't have to have progressive behavior to have progressive consequences because right. lots of people end up their marriages end because they just won't stop doing that quote unquote one behavior. Um, but the consequences still are real. Yep. 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 Well put. All right. The next misconception. Um, this is an interesting one because, um, well, I'll just say it that all women whose husbands look at pornography experience like betrayal trauma. Right. Tell me about that. So if you look at the studies on this, and there are not a lot of studies, but there are some studies, uh, you find a couple of things. Number one, you find that married women are much more likely to experience trauma symptoms than single women. So if a girl's dating a guy who's struggling with pornography, she's less likely to experience trauma than a woman who is married to a guy. And I think that makes sense because Marriage is a a higher level of commitment, and often these women don't find out about the pornography use until years in, and so it sort of um, brings into question everything about the relationship. Do I even know this guy? You know, if he's been lying about this, what else is he lying about? That's where a lot of women experience trauma. But the studies also show that not every woman experiences the classic trauma symptoms. And I think you and I will see this sometimes in our, our counseling practices, Some women come in and they're upset or frustrated, wish things were different, but they're not actually experiencing trauma per se. So they're not having flashbacks, nightmares, panic attacks, inability to function in in their life. Um, And I think it depends on so many things, the the context of disclosure versus discovery. Does he come and tell her about it or does she find out about it 10 years into the marriage? Is he apologetic and ready to get to work right away? Or does he blame her? Does he try to make it her fault? Right. Plus things like her growing up experience, you know, does she have a history of fearing abandonment and rejection? And this is just sort of another nail in that coffin of, see, I knew it. Nobody loved me or nobody loves me and I'm irrelevant. Or does she come from a, a, a different context in which, you know, maybe I, like I've worked with women who've said, oh, gosh, you know, my dad and all my brothers have pornography issues and I'm not super surprised that my husband does. I don't like it, but we're going to work through it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, again, she's upset, but not experiencing classic trauma symptoms. So I I think it's the trauma model is extremely important because it helps women feel like, oh, gosh, you know, I'm not crazy and I'm not codependent. 
But if we overuse the trauma model, if we overfocus on it, some women who are maybe not experiencing that will will feel isolated from the other women and go, well, hmm, that's not my experience. I wonder what's wrong with me. So women can think there's something wrong with them by not having trauma responses. Yeah, it's almost like survivor's guilt. How you know? How come I'm not doing as worse? Like it's almost like to to feel like they're doing well, they have to be doing horribly. And yeah, um, I agree. I, I've worked with a lot of women over the years who don't fit that model, and who have you know been disclosed to before they were like when they were dating, and right. their their boyfriend at the time was very open with them, really transparent. And in some ways, she's been a partner in that recovery process with them since day one. And he's never lied to her. He's been open with her. And it's it's treated more like working through – she sees it for what it is, that it's not about her, that he's not comparing her, that he wouldn't rather be with somebody else. And right. and I, I have. I've seen that before. Now, are those cases more the exception? Yes. Sure. I would agree that um, – if that's I don't know what your experience is. In my, in my experience, in my office, most people that come in are usually dealing with like some level of deception. And that's, that's like you said, that's where the trauma is, which is, I don't know my reality. I'm being lied to, manipulated, controlled, and that is so damaging. And that generally will create more trauma symptoms than somebody who's been open and honest and working in a humble way like that. Yeah. And I think it's really important to note that, you know, when women go online or go to a therapist seeking help and support, by the time you make a decision to show up to an online group, a support group, or by the time you make a phone call to pay $2 a minute for counseling, right, or more, depending on the cost, um, you're in a different category in, in a lot of cases. It's not the same across the board. The people that are out there who aren't necessarily in the support groups yet who aren't necessarily in counseling, who are in the early phase of, wow, you know, this is a problem. We need to try to deal with this. It's often a completely different category, different group. And so I think sometimes what happens is um, therapists, they see this small subsample of only the people who are in the highest level of distress and they want to, you know, broadly generalize to everybody who's experiencing this. This must be what's going on for everybody out there. Also, you get a few vocal people in an online support group who are very angry, very upset, very traumatized. And it can actually rile people up to the point where people who were going to react differently, you know, in a more calm, methodical kind of way, like, all right, let's go do this. Uh, sometimes they can get themselves really upset thinking, wow, maybe I should be way more upset than I am. And, and admittedly, there are some people who probably need a little bit of a wake up call. Uh, like, Hey, you need to start paying more attention to this. This is not going to just go away because you want it to. Right. But I think that's a big fear that I have for people as they seek, uh, shoot. Um, I think that's a big fear that I have for people as they seek, uh, support or resources online they'll get this smaller subsample of people who are experiencing massive trauma and they'll think that's the norm. And I don't necessarily know that it is. We don't have any research that says outside of a clinical sample or outside of a sample of people who are seeking support online, what they actually look like. Right. Right. So we have to be really careful. And I think that if somebody's wondering about whether you have trauma or not, or what, how you should be responding, that's where you can go meet with a therapist, get some, get some help, ask, have somebody ask you good questions and really do an assessment to see where you're at and what you need instead of just assuming that 
you should be responding this way. And right. those kinds of support environments can be very validating, like you said, and also offer a new perspective and give you ways to think about it. But you have to recognize that people that are dealing with betrayal or dealing with addictions are very vulnerable and uh, are, are looking for good answers. And so it's important to know that it's not just one way. Right. Let's go to another misconception. This is a little bit of a, a therapy misconception um, that, uh, you know, in treatment that each partner needs to have their own separate therapist. Say more about right. that. Yeah. You know, you and I have um, a model in our offices with the people that we work with that is different than maybe what other people do out there. We try to have one therapist doing all of the work with both the individuals and the couple at the same time. So it's sort of a rotation. The couple comes in for the first session, and then the next week, it's one of the partners, and the week after, it's the other one, and then we come back to the couple again. And it's not that we're doing marriage counseling in those couple sessions. You know, that usually, in most cases, comes way later, oh, after yeah. a therapeutic disclosure, after the recovery is solid, after the trauma is more stabilized. But those couple sessions, for me at least, are mission critical to know what's really going on. Because if I work with a guy individually, and I love the guys I work with, but their story of what's happening is often quite sanitized and it's sort of myopic. They only can see their own experience. If I don't have a partner or wife or whatever in the room telling me what that person's experience is in context of the other person, uh, then it's sometimes impossible to get good work done. That's why I'm, I'm often surprised by people that say, well, gosh, I, I only work with this particular half of the group. Well, then you better have some other therapists that you are coordinating care with, uh, because that just makes it extremely difficult. And my experience is, you know, certainly sometimes we'll have somebody call the office and say, well, my, you know, my husband's already seeing a therapist in another office. Can I just come in alone? And I'm not going to turn him down, but I am going to have a conversation and say, um, especially since this person works in another office, and this is still even true to some degree when we work in the same office, I'm just going to be missing data. We, we cannot coordinate effectively and efficiently that consistently about what is happening for us to really know what's going on. I use so much of what happens in the couple session for my individual work because that's where I'm seeing what's really going on contextually with them. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure people have had fine experiences out there where each person has their own therapist. Maybe even there's a third therapist who does the couple's work. It just, for me and my approach, feels really inefficient. Um, and I think it's more costly in the long run because probably you end up doing more sessions. So I'm, I'm not only trying to help people and be effective and efficient with treatment, but I'm trying to keep the cost down because you and I both know counseling is insanely expensive. Yeah, it can add up really yeah. quickly. Well, and I, I think that in order to, you know, for this model to work where somebody is working with one therapist, that therapist has to have really good boundaries and they have to also keep it really balanced. So they're not meeting, you know, in a lopsided way with one person to where it turns into an individual counseling setting. And right. so I, I know for me, I always work really hard to make sure it's, it's like you said, the rotation, uh, time with him, time with her, time with the couple, keep it going. And like you said earlier, the, the couples work a lot. I think a lot of people go right into individual counseling to deal with this issue uh, right out the gate because, right. of course, you can't do traditional couples counseling with couples that are dealing with major betrayal and, and uh, addiction issues. Uh, we know right. that. But like you said, 
the therapy at the beginning, the couple's work is about disclosure. It's about organizing the, the couple. It's helping educate. It's getting information. I mean, these people are living together still. So there's so much a therapist does to help slow down the chaos, control things, keep it, keep it, you know, contained and create a lot of uh, stabilization. And a lot of the times you're going to miss those pieces when you're just working with one person. In fact, I think it's a lot harder. So find yeah. a therapist who's comfortable working with all those. And, you know, sometimes in our, in our group, we'll, we'll have multiple therapists working with a couple, but sure. there's also a high level of coordination and cohesion going on there as well. But, uh, yeah, if you're, if yeah. you're going to do it the other way where there's multiple therapists, my opinion is they've got to be working in the same group. They need right. to be under the same roof or have a, a, a history of coordinating with each other in such a, such a seamless way that it, it feels like you're working with a team. Right. Let's go into another misconception. Um, everybody who looks at porn has an addiction. What's the problem with that? I think this is going to be an unending debate uh, among people. And I think it's fine. You know, I think uh, whenever we start talking addiction, people get strong feelings because on the one hand, you'll hear a lot of people and you and I both have clients who've said, I didn't get better until I owned the word addict. Because up until then, I was totally in denial. And on the other hand, there are people, like especially teenagers, for example, you know, they're 13 and they've been, you know, dabbling in porn for six months. And they're like, oh, my gosh, I think I'm addicted. And for some people, uh, I think maybe especially younger people, this idea of being addicted might feel like a cage, like a trap. Like right. there's no way I can get out of here. So. I like to, you know, it's interesting. I don't actually, especially early in therapy, I don't throw around the word addiction nearly as much maybe as I used to. I kind of let people show up and I want to see where they're at on that word themselves. If they come in and they go, oh my gosh, I'm addicted to pornography, then I go, great, we'll just go with that. If they come in and they're still sort of having this question like, well, you know, I look at it sometimes, but I'm not really sure. Um whether it's an addiction or whether addiction even exists. I'm not going to push too hard on that from a clinical perspective because I don't want that person to then come in and feel defensive in therapy, like I'm trying to label them or whatever. So um, I'm going to let it flow. And actually, I send all my people to 12-step groups, and I usually let them sort of sort that out in, in 12 steps, so I don't have to do that. But okay. I think it's I think it's pretty important um, – to not get too wrapped up in whether a person has an addiction or whether addiction exists or any of that. Because the thing that I care most about is do I have a suffering person in front of me? And is there suffering at least in part caused by um, a behavior? And, and at that point we're just confronting this behavior and I'm not going to worry nearly as much of whether we've got the terminology correct. Um, but I will also say you know, gosh, if, if somebody is experimenting with pornography, they're early on in the process, you know, they're in their first X number of months or maybe less than a year or whatever. Um, I think we should be careful about throwing the term addiction around because we don't know what impact it's going to have on people. Yeah, that's, that's really insightful. And in my experience, the word addiction for most people is – you know, is, is helpful when they have 
a need to be, I guess, to be woken up, right? Like when there needs to be like a right. reality check. And right. that that's where I find that that word can be really helpful. And that's usually for people that have been keeping secrets, that are betraying somebody close to them, that have been in a, a really long standing pattern of this and are in a tremendous amount of denial and minimizing the seriousness of what they're doing. The word addiction in that case can really help them come to the come to themselves and look at it honestly. I have not found that that word has been very encouraging and helpful to, like you said, people who are in early stages of experimentation and adolescence. Right. I don't, I don't think it's helpful to tell a 13, 14-year-old kid, you know, kid, you've got an addiction. I mean, that's... Right. And <laughs> that's heavy. It's heavy and, and it's discouraging. And we want, you know, we don't want to minimize that they have a pattern that we need to look at. But for, for a kid who's got a developing brain and who's trying to form identity and understand who they are and, and some of these other vulnerabilities, we really want to be careful with language because it really can't organize the way they see themselves. And I think the other thing that's pretty important is from a treatment standpoint, flexibility is such a critical yeah. uh, skill set to develop because and when you're in, when you're a younger therapist when you're when you're just trying things out when you're trying to learn you know you want everything manualized i want to have my my list of to-dos i want my tasks i want to know exactly what i'm doing and then i'm going to put people on the train and we're just going to go down that path every time but as you get more experience as a therapist and start realizing wow there's a lot of nuances in the human experience you suddenly go, I'm going to lose people and I'm not going to be able to help them the way I need if I put everybody on the same path and if I don't have some flexibility in there. And I think that's where the skill of the therapist and the therapist's ability to trust him or herself uh, and, and their clinical judgment experience, et cetera, becomes so important. And that's when you kind of start to decide whether a particular word is important to use or to move away from or whether a particular approach matters more or less. And on some level, you can only get that from just having done it a long time. Yeah. So so as far as people that are coming into your office, why would this concept matter to them? Why, why would it be important to, to clear up this misconception that everybody who looks at pornography has an addiction? I think the most important issue here is keeping people level-headed about anything. This is the same with, you know, gosh, I lost my job or I've just found out that my child has been experimenting with, I don't know, drugs or whatever it is. Being level-headed is so important in good decision-making and and not creating a, a, a panic that then is contagious for other people. I want my clients to come in and I want them to be calm. I know that they're, I know that they're probably upset. So it's not like I'm trying to cut their emotions off, but I, I don't want them to be in a panic. I want them to be calm. I want to be able to ex, you know, experience the emotion with them, but then I want to say, all right, well, where are we going? And sometimes if there's a word that has that much power attached to it and people get wrapped up in the word and the meaning of the word and what, what it means about the future, then they can't really be present in the moment and that makes it hard for us to get anything done. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's good. So giving people options that it's not just what they fear it is. It could be other things and let's slow it sure. down and have a conversation and find out, like you said, where's the hurt? Let's work on it and, and create some healing and, and not right. just spend all of our time getting hung up on labels. Yep. If you want to learn more about Adam Moore and also discover some of his resources, then you can visit adammore.com 
And of course, you can always go to the show notes and I'm going to put in there more about him and also a bunch of links to some free stuff that he's put on there. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Illuminate podcast where I continue my interview with Dr. Moore and go through a bunch of other misconceptions about pornography addiction and betrayal trauma recovery.